When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Adia Khan. So a few weeks ago, I was in London spending time with my family. To be honest, I didn't feel like doing the whole Thanksgiving thing this year. It's been tough, you know, with all the suffering around the world. And so I decided to spend this Thanksgiving in London. But you know what? London treated me really well. For the first time in a long time, I felt I could breathe easier. I didn't feel mentally exhausted. I felt good. And I didn't have to prove my identity or existence to others. And to top it off, London did something else, something unique. Pakistani food. Oh my gosh. Seriously, it was like a flavor explosion. London has one of the best Pakistani foods on the planet, outside Pakistan, of course. I couldn't get enough from chai, spiced kebabs, to yummy naans, and this fantastic pindi, an okra dish. So I'm really excited today because we are talking all about food and what it means to different folks. Today's guest, Pervez Shalwani, has written hard-hitting pieces of journalism for papers like The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Beast and CNN. He's reported on moments like the protests after the murder of George Floyd in New York City and the Brooklyn subway shooting in April last year. He's also a huge food journalist and a foodie. He's written pieces about the best Super Bowl snacks, fusion hot dogs, and even hosted a show called Feed Me about local Long Island restaurants. He's now running a hot dog pop-up called Chart Dogs, where he mixes his Chicago upbringing and Pakistani heritage. I am so excited to speak with him today on how these two branches of his career combine and what we can learn about our communities through food. So let's get started. Hello, Pervez. Welcome to Immigrantly. Thank you for having me. So we met at an event. We met at an event, very nice event actually, overlooking uh, all of Manhattan in uh, Union Square. Where exactly. And I tried your chat hot dogs. Chat dogs. Chat dog. The whole. Oh my gosh! We'll talk about chat dog, and I have a lot of thoughts Uh-oh. about that. Good thoughts. Okay, good. Curious thoughts. Okay. But before we do that. I want you to take us back to your first job as a journalist. Oh, boy. What stood out to you right away? 
about your first few years working. I ended up back in Chicago, which I didn't think I was going to do. This is where I grew up. I'm living with my parents and trying to find work. And I end up hanging out with a friend, a really good friend of mine who was working at the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time. And he was going to a job fair in New York. Among the people I met there were, it was the morning call in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And at the same time, my friend got a job at the Chicago Tribune. We just swapped. I, I, I took his apartment, moved to Philadelphia, ended up working at the morning call, was there for six months, then left for 18 months when my father was ill and came back for three years or so. I talk about that job a lot. I think you learn a lot about America in a place like that. I think you learn a lot about journalism in a place like that. The thing I tell students when I teach or young reporters is that job was super valuable to me. I didn't realize it was super valuable to me when I was there at the time because you get to do a little bit of everything. You're in a place where you're allowed to fail a little bit. You don't realize the skills that you've learned until well after you've left. And I feel like in media these days, and I don't want to make this a big diatribe about the media, but in media these days, not enough journalists understand how to do journalism. There is so much to (laughs) deconstruct in this. Oh my gosh, where do I start? Let's talk about what did you learn about America through that job? I think you learn how democracy works. You know, you learn, I think most people think democracy works at a federal level or a state level, but so much of what happens in your daily lives actually happens on the local level, whether it's the police department or the sanitation department or the school board or the city council. And those people have, the people who hold those jobs and what the decisions they make actually have a profound effect on your day-to-day lives. Give me an example. I think most people don't understand how school taxes happen and just understanding how school taxes happen and the push and pull of your property taxes and how schools are funded was a fascinating concept to me. That job, we were in the midst of the war in Afghanistan and we had just begun the war in Iraq when I got there, the second time around. And... National Guard units were being used in in Iraq. And just the whole process of even just mobilizing a National Guard unit, sending them to basic training, and then off to, and then desert training, and then off to Iraq was fascinating. The one thing I tell, a story I tell a lot, and I, tell, I, I say this to my students all the time, is knowing who runs something, and then also this idea of, who's not getting credit in a specific situation. And so during the Boston bombings, I was working at the Wall Street Journal. I know I'm fast-forwarding a lot here. Mm. Uh, But I was working at the Wall Street Journal. I'm there on the ground as one of the underground reporters. They've just, the whole capture has just happened. And the next day we're looking for stories. And I end up going, because of my my knowledge of having worked in Allentown, I know that the one person who also has to be on the ground in the command center when, you know, the when law enforcement is running an operation trying to find the second brother because the first one had died is the local police chief because it's his jurisdiction. And so I go to the police department. I say, hey, can I interview the police chief? Hmm. And their press person's like, yeah, sure. You can have 15 minutes. An hour later, he has told me from the minute they enter town to the minute they capture them, 
And I remember my boss at the time being like, wait, how'd you get this? And I'm like, because you know that this is the guy who wants to talk and is not giving coverage or, or, or same do as, you know, the other people who are running the operation, which was the Boston police chief and the FBI huh. uh, and the Justice Department. Pervez, let's go back to your first job. You said something else. You said it allowed you to fail. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I think the bigger the job and the bigger the news organization, the bigger the magnifying glass. And the bigger magnifying glass, the bigger the scrutiny. And then and then you have editors who understand, you know, where you are at that point in your career and are there to sort of help train you in that way, too. Why is failure important? I think if you don't fail, you'll never, you won't grow, I think is the best. Are you scared of failure? I see a I lot mean, of people. I think people, everybody's scared of failure in some I way. see some are less scared yeah. than others. But I do see this in America. There is so much pressure to be almost perfect in everything that you do. People are almost scared to fail. I think that's human nature. It's just, you know, people are scared to fail. I think, I mean, shoot, you know, we're as immigrants, you know, this idea that, like, the lens is always on you. Not on even all immigrants. No. But, you know, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe South Asian immigrants. Uh, 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 and the Non-white lens, immigrants. Yeah, it's true. And the lens is always on you, and you have to do it 10 times better than everybody else just to be on the same level. And and I can see that. But I think you learn to accept failure more as you age. I've said this a lot as I've hit, like, my mid-40s now. And I'm like, I care less because I know more. And I'm not saying care less in, like, I don't care. I care less in that, like, a lot of the stuff that you think matters doesn't matter. Doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> What's been the most rewarding moment as a journalist? Rewarding in what sense? Because there's so many things that are, so many different kinds of rewards in journalism. There's actual honors you get. There's... Not actual honors, how you felt or the impact. Let's let's talk about the impact. Look, I was always good as a breaking news journalist. I love breaking news. I love being first, you know, and I know that's a funny thing to say. But in the process of doing that, it was extremely rewarding to learn how the system works. And then at the same time, aggravating in that, like, you know how the system works and you try to explain it to people and show them that there's perspective and nuance and everything isn't one side or the other side, but there's a lot of gray matter in things. And so I think it's, I find that rewarding, if that sounds weird, that you, you're just able to think about things in a way that like, that feels rewarding, I guess. Yeah, I get that. But for me, as an outsider, when I look at mainstream media in Mm -hmm. the U.S., I don't see that gray matter, especially for certain communities. I see a lot of black and white, and I see a lot of one-dimensional or even reductive narratives. Where did you see the gray matter? I'm, I'm curious to know, how did you see gray matter? Are you saying as a journalist or in actually what we, in, in what we share what, as a news organization? As a news organization. I think more and more that's an uphill battle. I see gray matter in stories all the time. It's just how much of it is there, where it's placed, and how much emphasis is put on it. 
you're saying there's a disconnect between what journalists see and what they report and what's reported no, through news I, organizations? I think I think it's just an issue of time and space and, you know, this need to be so fast. And, like, I just think there's so many journalists now out there. Uh, Talk some more. I think, you know, there's too many news organizations that are into racy, over-the-top headlines. I think there's too much... And you think it's happening more now versus, say, 20, 30 years ago? Oh, definitely. There's no doubt about that. The internet has changed, you know, that, I think. And there's there's also this push to put stuff out so fast and to match stuff that other people have. I mean, back in the day, you had a story, you, ha- you, you, you owned that story for hours possibly because you didn't have a medium to put it out on, right? Like if you broke a story in a newspaper in a print edition, you owned it for a while, right? Now you broke a story and within seconds sometimes somebody is matching it, you know, with their own sources and so they're running with it. And then you have other news organizations that are aggregating it and then you have Twitter, which is amplifying it. And so, you know... Then you're watching as people are reading what they want to into it instead of seeing the nuance even in the way that it was written sometimes, you know? And it's Mm. just like, that's not what it says. I know you think that's what it says, but there is a little bit more nuance in the way it was written than in the way that you're amplifying it, if that Mm. makes sense. But don't you think because of the internet and social media, there are more perspectives out there? So. That, by default, creates more nuance sometimes. I think the great thing about the Internet, and I say this to my students all the time, is that I think there's the ability to hold people accountable. I think there is there is more perspectives, you know, perspectives that otherwise wouldn't get out before now actually right. have an avenue to share. And now it's... But the other problem becomes now is like, who to trust and who not to trust. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And how many of those perspectives are grounded in some level of fact versus, you know, fiction? Let's switch gears. I want to talk about chat dogs now. So during COVID, you decided to leave CNN and focus on chat Dog, a fusion hot dog mixing your Chicago and Pakistani background. You also started a project called Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back. Correct. And I was listening to one of your podcast episodes with FAQ NYC. And you talk about how you shied away from South Asian food growing up. Talk to me about the transformation from then as a child to now starting something like Chart Talk? So just for a little background, I have a background as a journalist. And then about 10 years after I went to journalism school, I decided to move to New York and go to culinary school. My parents are probably like sitting there shaking their heads, being like, we let you go to journalism school and a culinary school. With the idea, I didn't know what I was going to do. So became a food journalist for a while, and I was food journalist and, and a news journalist. Then I went into news journalism, and then I went back to food journalism, then I went back to news journalism, and then finally during the pandemic, I was working at CNN. I was running their Trump investigations team first, and then later their Policing in America team. Towards the end of July 2022, I ended up leaving CNN, and 
decide that I'm not going to run and take another job right away. I'm 45 years old. I'm about to be 45 years old. And I'm like, I have some level of luxury at that point to say, okay, I've been doing this now for 25 years. You know, what am I going to do next? And I could have easily been like, okay, I'm going to take another job in daily journalism. I'm sure I will do wonderful. And, you know, I'll do that job for a couple of years. And then, you know, I'll do another one and I'll do another one. I could do that for the next 20 years of my life and be fine. But I was like, is that what I really want to do? And I was like, let me take a step back and see what else I want to do. And I, with the chat dog thing, I had been rewind a little bit. 2017, we are, we have this idea to throw a surprise birthday party for a friend of ours in our backyard who used to do hot dog cook-offs. For the hot dog cook-off, several of us decide to participate. My wife and I join forces and we create what is called a Billbury dog. So we put Billbury on top of a hot dog. Shot is a South Asian street snack that comes in various different forms. They generally tend to be spicy, sweet, salty, savory. It's also a spice mix, chaat masala, which has a very strong sulfuric smell to it from the black salt in it, almost like rotten eggs, if you will. It tastes delicious. Tastes delicious. And so I'm at CNN and I'm like, chaat dog? Our, our hot dog? Chaat dog? Wait, why didn't it take me four years to think of that? So we start doing it. We start trying to make different kinds. I, I start doing it, really. Start making different kinds of chaat to go on top of hot dogs. And then this happens. I leave CNN and I end up going to Chicago that following week. I've been pre-scheduled. And I make chaat dogs there for my family. And they're like, this is wonderful. And then throughout the summer, we're making them for friends and more family. And then doing a bunch of tests. And then come November, a friend of mine is like, let's team up at this brewery and do a chaat dog event. And so we do. And then after that, I do another and then another. And here we are. I was actually doing one last night in Brooklyn. And it's... It's, you know, it was part of a larger project for me called Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back, which I'd also thought about while I was at CNN. And Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back for me was, what is American food? I call it Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back, the story of American food, which is, to me, is immigrants, which is every single one of us. We come here and our food is, and I'm putting this in quotes, weird. And then at some point it becomes part of American food. And what that, is American food? That is what American food is. And people, somebody asked me this question a couple of weeks ago. When you say immigrants, what do you mean? I, and when you talk about stinky lunch kids, and I say, when I say immigrants, when I talk about stinky lunch kids, I'm saying every single person that has ever crossed into these borders who wasn't originally here going back to whatever is helped create what American food is today. And the natives who are here are the ones who cultivated the ingredients that were already existing mm. that are being used by immigrants in creating what is American food today. And obviously there's techniques and foods that have been brought over that have also, you know, shaped American food. But, and I joke when I talk about this, I say, imagine if the first settlers came to America, right? The pilgrims. And I'm putting that in quotes as well. And they landed and they cooked for the natives. And I can only imagine the natives being like, what is this crap you brought here to us, you know, that you're cooking? I mean, obviously, that's not how it happened, or at least that's not how it's been told how it happened. That's sort of what every immigrant group has gone through in America, or large immigrant group that is, you know, wave of immigrants groups have gone through when they've landed here. I say this about the hot dog. The hot dog roughly came to the America in the 1860s, right, with German immigrants. Uh, and then other immigrants brought over other variations of the hot dog, too. And as far as we know, the first food carts in New York City showed up in the 1880s. And I Imagine what the people who thought of themselves as American, American back then thought of hot dogs, you know, that were being brought over by German immigrants. And this is what every immigrant group has gone through. 
So to me, American food is immigrant food. And, you know, even when you say that the chat dog is fusion, I actually don't like the word fusion. I think I call it this, the American street food, because that's what it is, right? If you yeah. think about the hot dog, right? And I say this to people, like, if you think the hot dog is the thing you find on every street corner in America, chat is the thing you find on every street corner in South Asia, right? That's India, true. Pakistan, Bangladesh, yeah, you're right. maybe Sri Lanka, Nepal. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking two street foods, they see an American, and fusing them together for so their American fusion, though. It's American food, right? Because, like, because to me, and, and sorry, uh, and I know I used the word fusing. I'm taking two foods that are part of who I am, and I'm putting them together. And who am I? I am American. I am Desi American. So if I was to create a, a food business, my food business would be weird for me to be like, I make sog paneer, or I make butter chicken, right? I would be like, I make sog paneer tacos, or I make butter chicken pot pie, or something like that, because those are the things I grew up eating, right? And so what I'm doing is I took something I grew up eating, and something that, like, my parents instilled in me, which is the chat, and fuse them together or put them together into one dish that I call this American street food. You know, so I tried your chat dog and it tastes delicious. And before I tried it, if somebody had told me that you could put chat on hot dog yeah. and eat it, I would be like, no, this is blasphemous. You can't do that, right? And that's the interesting part because a lot of times as immigrants, and I can speak for myself, I feel like the authenticity of any recipe needs to be preserved in its original form. And I do think about it a lot, but then what is original? That's what I was just going to say that's, when you said that. That is what I think. And then I'm like, why am I so hung up on this idea of originality, again, quote unquote originality, right. which may be so different for different people, like sure. dal or chicken in South Asian cuisine looks so different in different parts of Pakistan or India or sure. Bangladesh. So have you seen any pushback or criticism of what you're creating? Believe it or not, no. I think the only person I could ever remember, the only two things that pieces of criticism I've ever heard was, and this is somebody who had no followers on Twitter, but somebody on Twitter was like, <laughs> and it wasn't South Asian even, you maybe know? It's, maybe it was a bot. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it was a bot. Was like, this is blasphemy. Like, you are, you know, ruining Indian food or you are ruining, uh, ruining South Asian food. And then the only other person was somebody came to one of my pop-ups and it ordered, one of the other things I make is this thing called a walking chop, which is a play on a walking taco, which you find in certain, uh, they either call it a walking taco or a Frito pie, where you take a bag of Fritos and you put all the taco toppings on top of it. So you can walk around it with it and eat it. And I do the same thing except with chot. I put chot on Fritos or chot on a bag of chips. And so somebody had ordered that. And I gave it to them. And they were shocked by how expensive it was. We charged $8 for it. And they're like, this person was not Indian, but it was like, I speak fluent Hindi, I lived in South Asia, and this is a, you know, this is an insult that you could charge this much for. And I'm like, you know, and my, I almost said to this person, and then I was like, I'm not getting into it. I was like, why is this their idea that immigrant food or, or Indian food or, you know, has to be cheap, you know? Yes, like, yes. Yeah. 
I mean, and, I, and this is not even Why just— Why should French food be expensive? Right. When, and look, it's our own parents do this too, right? They'll be like, I'm not going to spend that much money for if for Indian food. And I'm like, but you'll spend that much money to go eat a steak or French yeah, food or for Italian them, food. They like, can create it at home. So maybe in their minds, they don't need to spend money because they can really create it. And look, I feel the same way, right? There are times when I'll go to a steakhouse and be like, I'm not going to order steak because I can make a steak as good as any steakhouse in my house, you know, and oftentimes better in my house, especially when you're spending 80 or or $100 on a steak, exactly. you know. But the margins I can only imagine on Indian restaurants in certain communities has got to be awful. Uh, so, Baris, let me ask you this one. And I know what? we're all over the place here. Yeah, We're fine. <laughs> okay. Tell me, why do you think people assume that immigrant food should be cheap? I think because it's always been cheap. And, and I, we're using immigrant very loosely. Oh, immigrant, here. anybody born outside right. the U.S. Yeah. is uh, an immigrant. But I'm just saying, yeah, I think certain groups come here, or a lot of groups come here, in their own communities, they cook food. Everybody's trying to make themselves, you know, build themselves up from, you know, their bootstraps, you know, they come here with whatever they have, and then they, you know, they work their way up. It's the great American, you know, Promise, at least. Um, Myth. Myth, sometimes, yes. (laughs) Uh, And so in those communities, you don't have that much money, right? And... Or and 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 the food yeah, is cheap. and then people come in from right? outside. Sure, people come in from outside and are eating, and like so, this is what they're presented with. I think it's multifaceted. I think it's multi-loaded. I think there's a lot of expectations. I think there's a lot of perceptions. I think there's a number of reasons why people expect hmm. quote unquote immigrant food to be cheap. But I think not all immigrant food is cheap, right? Again, we are talking about specific immigrant food. If we think of Western European immigrants, do you think their food is cheap or was cheap? Or has evolved? I think it's evolved. I mean, imagine the hot dog. Imagine the hamburger. Imagine fish and chips. Uh, yeah, you're right. Except for French. I don't know what, well, what no, people's I mean, obsession with French food so is. French food has always been seen as like the, it's the high-end food. I don't know. You know Why? Like, That's well, my question. I mean, look, you know, we, we live in a world where so many of the restaurants, even in, in India, you know, the training is is French, you know. It's mm. when you go to a fancy restaurant, you know, or a fancy hotel, they're trained in French cooking brigade, which is how I'm trained. I went to French Culinary Institute, and any culinary school you go to, any high-end culinary school you go to in America at least, and probably in, in, in many parts of the world, this is the way you're trained to set up and run a kitchen. That doesn't mean it's the only way, that's, but is it the quality of food? Is it the structure, organization? I think it's structure. I think it's quality. I don't know that I'm the best person to speak to that. I think, you know, there, we, we, we've given French food around the world this high, you know, I mean, you have things like Escoffier and, you know, the books that have been written and, like, the amount of work that goes into creating some of these dishes as well. So uh, Yeah, but I could I, argue the oh, amount I mean, of Time sure. and effort that goes into creating desi dishes. Absolutely. Nyari takes how long? You know? Oh like, my gosh. I cook food almost every other day, although my husband would disagree. But um, it takes me an hour just to cook one dish or and, even longer. And you're talking about, I mean, you're talking about, I don't know, and maybe this is my own blinders or biases, you know, but I think you're talking about things like something simple. I think that's more rustic. I think some of the French stuff is more refined is some of the things that we're talking about, especially in 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 some of these restaurants. I mean, when you're talking about something like a 
and you don't even see this anymore, or you don't see it as often anymore, like a pate and crout. And you know, how much time and how hard it is, the skill level that's involved in mm. order to making a pate and crout. I don't know why pate and crout is the one thing we're talking about here, of all the things that you get involved in skill level, but where you get the crust on the outside right, while you get the mixture of meat inside correctly, and then the art form that goes into to the way it looks when you cut it is, it's a lot of work. Mm, uh, I did a story five years ago, six years ago on this guy on Long Island who makes, who still does pate and crew, you know, and it's like, it's kind of a dying art form. And it's like, it's an obscene amount of work ah. that's involved in making that. And I'm not saying other countries, and I'm sure there's, I know there's dishes in, in South Asia that are equally, you know, labor-intensive and and require skill, right? Like, most home kitchens aren't making those dishes, Yeah, right? I, exactly. You know? That's what I was going to say. Like, what I cook is not a standard or a gold standard right. for what, you know, a chef sure. would cook right. and the amount of time that they would spend. But you're right. But as I want to go back to Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back, why Stinky Lunch Kids? This is where I probably should have gone with this earlier. It's like, so the two are supposed to are supposed to operate in town. Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back, story of American food, immigrants who every single one of us, we come here, food is weird, and at some point it becomes an American food. And I feel like we don't tell stories of American food through that lens. And I feel like if we told stories of American food through that lens, we would realize that all of us, that so many of us, or a large majority of us, and some could even argue all of us at some point in our history in America have, have had to find a way to adapt. And when I talk about stories of Stinky Lunch Kids and recipes in Stinky Lunch Kids, I say it's either through necessity or out of ingenuity, you take what you know from where you came, and then you have to adapt it to what you have here. You know, I know that's changing because you can essentially get anything you want here now, but even when my parents arrived in the late, in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't get everything here, you yeah. know? Like, I remember one of my mom's dishes, she makes this thing called Machibat, which is a family dish, machi being fish and buck being, you know, palau or rice. And they would use pomfret. And pomfret has to come all the way from India or from South Asia in on a plane, frozen. And you have to go to the South Asian grocery store to get it. And I was like, well, why aren't we using something more local? And so yeah. at some point they started using tilapia and then they started using catfish and they started adding, you know, jinga or shrimp to it. And the dish evolved, right? Or watching my mom make pizza naan. Because that was a way we had not in the house, and the kids like pizza, mm. and so it's like, okay, we can do this, you know. Or this is very popular. I feel like in the '80s, where you would take Chex Mix and you make Chevro out of it. I came to the U.S. in the early 2000s, yeah. so I have so, no clue. You know, uh, or taking like shake and bake and adding Indian spices to it, or you know, it's like all these. And look, they also came here and they loved this idea of wait, I can make food instantly. You know, I have all the, the grocery stores sell this stuff, you know, which was not, was new to uh, them. And so it's taking that also and applying it. Why stinky? Are you trying to reclaim the term stinky? I mean, arguably, yes. You know, so the stinky lunch kids, the stinky, the strike back is the key part, right? In the end, immigrants win. In the end, their food becomes part of American food. But when they get here, oftentimes... They're made fun of, they're shunned, they're laughed at. And, you know, and I was that kid, right? I, I mean, I didn't necessarily bring, I think one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing when I talk about Stinky Lunch Kids is to get people to not focus on the idea of the 
literally the stinky lunch kid, the lunch box. But this idea that we come here and our food is something that people sort of shun, make fun of, whatever. And then the strike back is, hey, look, it's now being incorporated either into American cuisine by other chefs or people like me are taking it and turning it into something new. And people want to eat it, right? I've said this on Instagram once. I, I went on TV and did my, my, the only TV interview I've done about, uh, about shot dogs was in Philadelphia in the morning show. And I talked about chop masala. And I opened up a box of chop masala. And they smelled it on camera on the morning <laughs> show in Philadelphia. And I'm like, and I had to post on Instagram and be like, how far we've come that I can actually open up a box of chop masala and people smell it and say it smells delicious, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember growing up, and this is a story, you know, I tell about jot dogs. My dad comes over in 71. He discovers the hot dog at Sears, which is, you know, essentially the equivalent. Does he like it or does he just Oh, he loves it. it. He loves it. But essentially the equivalent of what Ikea is today, right? You go to Ikea and there's the, the, uh, the cafeteria. Sears had a cafeteria, so he falls in love with it. My mom comes over in 75. He takes her for a hot dog. She thinks it's the most disgusting thing she's ever had, which makes sense, right? Because in South Asia, there is no equivalent of a hot dog. And honestly, I can understand that. It's like something, meat that's been pulverized, put into a casing, poached, and then either steamed, boiled. I'm not a big fan of hot dogs (laughs) either. fried or grilled, right? Uh, But when we move to Chicago, which is hot dog country, Hmm. you know, they feed us hot dogs. We eat all beef hot dogs of all different kinds. Regular hot dog, chili dogs, wrapped in cheese, put in naan, put in chapati, you know, you name it, we probably ate it. But the thing we didn't eat was chaat masala, or at least knowingly ate chaat masala because growing up in the western suburbs of Chicago, you are made fun of in every possible way when you're one of only five brown kids at your school, if that. You're a towel head, you're a camel jockey, you're, you know, I don't know why Gandhi is a bad word for people. It's like, oh, you're Gandhi. I was like, why? Like, you, you look back and like, why was that? Uh, and then you're like, your house smells like curry, right? And you're like, I remember, so I still vividly remember some kid leaning into the door of my house like, does your house smell like curry? And I'm like, you know, pushing him out. And I remember even my family, you know, when we would cook, when my mom would cook and, you know, she was making the what I call the trifecta and every culture has their version of a trifecta. I think, I think South Asia's is... Indian garlic ginger, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh. You know? Absolutely. And so when you put those three together and you start frying that, you know what the house smells like. And it's just like, okay, open the windows, hide your clothes, close the doors, you know. And the dish tastes, tastes delicious. Tastes delicious. Amazing, yeah. Right? You know, but and you didn't want to be that, that stinky person, right? Uh, and so chaat masala, I remember my mom would give my dad chaat masala on cucumbers almost every night. Chaat masala and salt. And it's honestly delicious. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, something about the cucumber and chaat masala, like, they marry very well together. But the way it smells, as we talked about earlier, is it smells like rotten eggs, you know, and that's because of the black salt. So there's no way. So knowingly, I probably didn't eat chaat masala until, like, my teens and, like, learn to appreciate it. And so that, for me, is also part of the chaat dog experience and the stinky lunch kids strike back and the story of the stories that I'm trying to tell here as I cook the chaat dog and share Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back. And what Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back for me is, is, you know, it's going to start as a substack. It's going to hopefully balloon into whatever it becomes. But hopefully it is people sharing recipes and stories of how they took what they knew and out of either necessity or out of ingenuity, they created something else 
And when you and even to go back to saying, you know, when you're saying authentic, I think we're always doing that because like I think authentic really only goes back a couple of generations. Be like, oh, this is authentic. And How many authenticity gen- is relative, right? right? It's different for different people. Sure. You know, I mean, then, right. One, what is authentic to you or me only goes back a couple of generations. Like if we were to go back to our great grandparents and be like, take your mom. And she's like, okay, my mom's dishes are authentic, right? And if you took them to your grandmother, your grandmother would be like, okay. Yeah, the, that's that's pretty much how we make it. You go back to your great-grandmother and be like, kind of how we made it. Right. You go back to your great-great-grandmother, they're like, what is this? This is not real. And then this whole idea of what, authentic to who, right? I tell my mom dishes, you know, or whatever. And, and it's like this Halim, I remember one was, Halim has this. And she's like, that's not Halim. And I'm like, no, that's not Halim to you. Yes. But it's Halim <laughs> to this person, right? And so... Even shot, I could only imagine, you know, like if you present shot to people, the shot you would get in India versus in Pakistan versus oh gosh, in Northern India versus so South India is different. different. Even shot masala. I've I've played with so many different shot masalas, probably eight to ten of them. They're all very different. And the shot masala I use, I give it to my mom and she's like, this isn't shot masala. You've been a journalist for so long. Right. You're creating food, in fact, food that obviously transcends cultural restrictions or norms. How do you think food brings communities together? When they say break bread together, I feel like food is an amazing way to bring people together. Having gone to culinary school, you know, having run uh, covered restaurants, being interested in eating at wonderful restaurants, I found it always easy to take sources to restaurants that I just wanted to go to. It was always a great icebreaker when you were mm. talking about heavy subjects to be like, it's when you go out with a source a lot of times, especially a law enforcement source, you know, it's like most people are interested in eating, I feel like. And so it's a good conversation piece as you're trying to also get information and it works, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, it's easy to connect with people through food. The minute you start talking about food, people's guard comes down because I think most people just want to talk like about eating. food, and they like eating. eating you know, so absolutely. it's just like, and then like, look, one of the things that with Shot Dog that always is fascinating is like, they're like, wait, what is it? And then you're like, wait, fourteen dollars for a hot dog? You know, in New York, that's what we've been charging of late. And some guy last night was like, he's like, fourteen dollars for a hot dog, and then he came back up and he's like, that's the best hot dog I've ever had. And then actually bought a second one and left a tip. And I was like, I think people hear hot dog and they instantly think cheap food, right? You're right. And they think the dirty water dog and the, you know, the stale bun I'm getting at the corner, right? That often, so often happens. And I'm like, mine's not a hot dog. Mine's a shot dog. Which is, you know, like, uh, it's, it's a hot dog with a whole nother part of my life combined with it, you know? Exactly. Where do you hope to take Chart Dog? It's funny. Lots of people have been asking me that. I don't know. Right now, we're doing pop-ups. We're looking to find regular spaces to cook at, uh, preferably during lunchtime if possible, or regular residencies. Talked about opening up a... I think what would be fun is to open up a hot dog cart. That's what I was thinking. That would be a great next step. Yeah, but think about... and. Because you're Pakistani, lived in Pakistan. Think about if I took the hot dog cart and I dressed it up like a one of the Pakistani trucks that you get. Oh my gosh! Right, that would be so amazing. Right, and then you do one. Oh my gosh! And you take it, 
on the road, you know, I, I, I don't know if it'll be licensed in a way where we're going to set it up on a street corner. I'd like for it to be maybe, I don't know, but at least you can take it to events, either breweries or, you know, or one of the things a number of people says, like, imagine if you were the food at a thisy wedding after the party. You're right. You're, you're, you're the food after the dancing and the drinking has happened, or at least the dancing. And you're like, I'm hungry now. And you're like, at the end of the night, you know, this is a thing that now happens at events, especially weddings, right? You're like, there's the food after, whether it's pizza or burgers ah. or whatever, right? It's like, why can't Shot Dog be that? Oh, my gosh. Pizza. I'm oh. so excited, Perez. I can't wait to see a Shot Dog caught somewhere in New York. So I usually ask my listeners to define the United States in a word or a phrase, but I will tweak it a bit. Okay. If you were to describe the U.S.'s relationship to food instead, how would you do that? I can't think of any other country in the world where what the food that defines it is defined by the people that come into it. Hmm. Like there, like there was nothing that. that really existed beforehand, right? I mean, yes, obviously there is native food that existed, and I'm glad to see, I'm ecstatic to see, I'm excited to eat those dishes as they're they're finding their way into the mainstream. It was great to have a, a, a chef of native background win a James Beard Award. It was last year or the year before, and see that person's restaurant flourish. But the idea of American food and food in America is the food of all of us, and it's constantly evolving, changing, being redefined. And with Sneaky Lunch Kids Strike Back, I guess I would say is like, it's just how we talk about and how we look at it and the lens through which we, you know, define it. And I just think it'd be my big hope for this is, right, you know, having worked in mainstream journalism and just watched as it's almost impossible to write a story in which everybody will not just take one side or the other and not look at the nuance in the story at all. I'm just hoping, and so there's no conversation. I'm I'm hoping that through Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back, maybe we can use this idea of American food as a conversation to talk about where we all came from and how all of us came from somewhere that isn't here. Thank you so much, Pervis. Where can people find more information about Jot Dog, Stinky Lunch Kids, Strike Back? Jot Dog is, as of now, jotdog.com or uh, Instagram at jotdog, C-H-A-A-T, D-O-G. And Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back is a Substack. As of now, you can also find information on that. Uh, there is an Instagram handle as well for Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back. I think it's called Stinky Lunch Kids Strike Back, actually. Um, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's the best way to find it. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. What a fun conversation from Pervez's journalistic endeavors to Chart Dog. And how can we not talk about stinky lunch kids strike back? I'm so glad I sat down with Pervez to have this holistic, fun, informative conversation. Come back next week when we have another incredible guest. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan. Written by Bobak Afshari. Our editorial review was done by Shay Yu. Our theme music for this podcast is by Simon Hutchinson. Our editor and sound designer for this specific episode is Steve Martin. 
Until next time, take care and be kind to yourself and to others.